0: Do you crave meaningful conversations with people of different backgrounds and perspectives? Do you admire certain people from afar but wish you can get to know them on a deeper level? Thankfully, we live in an incredible age where long-form conversation allows us to connect with those who inspire us beyond the often manufactured soundbites, small talk, and social media posts we are bombarded with on a daily basis. This is a podcast that seeks to provide you our listeners with refreshing content from a variety of inspiring guests, a place where we can truly hear their stories. I'm Karen Corin, and welcome to Soul Sessions with KK. Why do so many of our brothers and sisters turn to drugs and alcohol? How does an addict get out of a deep rabbit hole? And how do we solve the addiction crisis? These were some of the questions I had for Moisha Khanen. He shares a story of addiction and rehabilitation in episode 33 of this podcast. During the interview, I was so focused on how we need to fix the problem that I didn't realize I was focusing on the wrong thing. Moisha helped me discover that the answer doesn't lie in the symptom, but more in the cause. Morsha's story is one that will touch your heart. He teaches us the importance of deep inner work and asking others for help. But most importantly, we learn that the key to freedom is love. What does love have to do with any of this? What does it have to do with addiction? Find out by listening to episode 33. Hi, everyone. It is my honor and pleasure to have Coach Moisha Khanen on my show today. He is here to talk to us about something very important, actually, many, many important things. And I truly believe that listening to him share his story will enlighten you and inspire you on your own path. Moisha, thank you for coming on here on the show. Thank you for being here.
1: You're welcome. And thank you for having me. This is. Um... This is an honor for many reasons, but well, I guess we'll talk about it. Over
0: yes, for sure. So, Marcia, can you tell the audience a little bit about yourself? Who are you and what do you do?
1: Okay. Um, who am I? That's actually most of everything I do. Um, so I guess I'll put them both into the same thing. When Now that I do the work and I think about who am I, It's very helpful for me to just say, I am, this is going to sound very arrogant. I am God's expression of love here on earth. But my name is Moshe Khanan And um, I was born in Crown Heights, Brooklyn, family of 11, very vibrant, loud uh, family. And um, I'm currently 35. Married to Chaya Chayahaneh, from the Frock, And we have four kids, thank God. And yeah, Baruch Hashem. And um, yeah, I had a journey in between the day I was born until today. And um, I'm happy to share with my journey. Uh, what I do today is I coach people in identifying who they are and using who they are actually as a means and a source of energy to accomplish what they would love to accomplish here on earth while they're alive. What
0: inspires you to become a life coach?
1: It was a combination of many people throughout my adult life asking me whether I was a life coach or whether I was a therapist, because I just kind of like became that person, that friend. Mm -hmm. And, um, it was a combination of that and trying it, <laughs> trying to do it professionally. And once I started doing it professionally, I um, I was just in love. Yeah.
0: Let's go back. Let's go back a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, you have been open about struggling with alcohol. Um, you have shared many of your talks with your audience on YouTube and on your Instagram page. Can you tell us about what? You know, can you tell us about your story about how you got into, unfortunately, alcohol and perhaps other substances?
1: Yeah, yeah, it'd be my pleasure. Um, so what's interesting is that alcohol was the level up from where I was earlier. And what it began as was uh, stealing that was my first that was my first drug of choice and i want, i think it would be most useful to the listener if we talk more about why i even started that in the first place yeah and i could talk about what i felt without realizing that the way i felt was not normal and was something that i could ask for help for and that same feeling that i felt back then when i was 6 7 years old is the same feeling that i can feel today if i don't That's a quote-unquote do the work, and we could talk about what the work is. Yeah. The feeling is I'm too scared to tell people how I feel, how I truly feel. I'm scared that they won't love me if I do. I'm scared that they will judge me. I'm scared that they will reject me. I don't feel like I'm part of everybody else. seems like everybody else got the manual for life, and I didn't seems like everybody has it together everybody has their talent and i have nothing what's wrong with me if only i had this did this accomplished that then maybe i would fit in and for me it started with stealing i didn't i knew that stealing was bad which means i was stealing from my mother's bad uh you know uh pockets in my father's pockets and then eventually graduating to shoplifting and um, buying things on my parents' credit account at the grocery store.
0: How old were you when you first started stealing?
1: I I was seven. Oh
0: wow.
1: Yeah I was shoplifting also when I was seven so I, I may have started stealing earlier than that but I know I know for sure I was seven when I was shoplifting because of what grade I was in. Yeah yeah so that's when I That's when that began, but it also got cut short quickly because I got caught. (laughs) Um, I wasn't that slick, I guess. What that did for me was it got me to buy the things I thought I was lacking. So it got me to buy um, equality between me and peers at school because I got to bring, I got to compensate, you know, because I was so low. I had to be a little bit better than everybody else just so that I can kind of feel just like them. So I would, I would buy things in the credit account or, and, and that's how I would, I would buy friends. And when I came home and I had money, I'd be able to chip in to buy the, whatever item it was that my family was chipping in to try to buy for the house. Buy the things that I wanted, you know, that I thought that I, I, you know, I just wanted and I, I was too scared to ask for. You know, either too scared to ask for because I knew I was going to get a no or because whatever it is that I wanted was something that was not allowed. Yeah, so it began with stealing and then eventually I graduated to drinking when I was about 12 and I had friends having bar mitzvahs and everybody was dancing and that was like the event, so. I would be able to do all these funny things, fun things on the dance floor, like uh, acrobatic things and things like that. So the courage came from having a couple of drinks, um, which was just like, it was literally covering the bottom of these teeny little cups. And I would, I would just take everybody's and and drink it. And uh, I don't remember alcohol being a problem at that time. I didn't see what I was doing. is not normal. Um, And I, you know, I don't know if alcohol was a problem then. Like, I wasn't an alcoholic. Um, I definitely love trying to get together as many, you know, as often as possible where there was a drink, you know. Um, pretty, very short, you know, quickly, uh, 12, 13, 14, I was drinking to the extent that people would see me drinking and be like, wow, man, this this kid could drink. And he's totally. Functional and he's not being wild and and he knows how to hold his liquor and glorifying that, you know Oh wow, you know this kid can hold it Mm. Um, A significant moment happened for me when I was somewhere between 14 and 15 and It was a Shabbos afternoon and I had used alcohol to be just like my friends again Right, so just like it was back in the day was stealing over here. It was my friends and I going out on Chavez afternoon to um, find girls and, and uh, say hi to them and be rebellious. And for them, for some reason, it seemed like it was so natural and easy. And for me, I was so turning inside. I just wanted to be okay. I just wanted to be normal. Why can't I just say hi to somebody? Why can't I just look somebody in the eyes and say, Good Chavez, you know? Shabbat shalom. You know, yeah. and, um, right. and, this, and this was anybody, but specifically for that, you know, I really wanted that and I wasn't able to do it. So without really, and I just want to be clear, like all of this was without like sitting and thinking it through, it was a natural subconscious, like a natural subconscious way of just thinking in a process that was just going to happen. I don't recall sitting there and thinking, mm, no, I'm not confident, I'm gonna go and I'm gonna drink because you know I feel less than, no. there was no self, uh, self-concept in that perspective, you know, right. self-consciousness. So I had um, about two bottles of wine and nobody was around. I was just waiting for my friends to come over. And once they came over, I had already had this certain, this experience. And the experience was walking out of my bedroom, down the stairs, out my parents' house, and being able to see in color, kind of. Being able to hear the trees and the leaves moving. Being able to um, just notice things that, I I felt like I was seeing things in tunnel vision. And in black and white all my life. And all of a sudden things are like this space, this openness. I'm able to see in like a panoramic view and I'm able to say to Chavez and shalom to people and look at them in the eye and say, hi, to Chavez. There was like all of the, the noise and the filters were taken away and I could finally embrace life. And that's when my friends came over. I don't remember what happened after that. That wasn't, Again, I wasn't like a messy drunk whatsoever and nobody noticed anything. I didn't tell anybody. But when I look back to think like, when did I decide to become an alcoholic? I think it might've been that moment where I knew that alcohol would give me um, all of that experience. Yeah. And uh, I was subconsciously seeking that experience.
0: Can I ask you something? Um, You said that from an early age, six to seven years old, you started having these feelings of like you're not worthy, um, I'm not good enough, and all of these you know feelings that showed a lack of self-esteem. Where did that come from? You know, like
1: I have no idea. I don't know.
0: Was it that you know you said you grew up in a big family with many siblings? Um, is this something that you saw? Or is this something that like you got turned off by? Like how did, like, how, how did you about yeah. that
1: played out? Yeah, I don't know. That's the truth. Um, there are significant experiences that I had that, um, that awakened a lot of shame and, and, and feelings of neglect and things like that. But I think that was even after then after the age of six and seven. So I'm not sure exactly when that happened. Like, um, as a kid, being called names, um, that that was probably the most significant thing that I can think about that was like traumatic for me.
0: Were you able to share with like your family? Did your family know what was going on? Or were they oblivious?
1: Um, they weren't oblivious to it happening, but they were oblivious to the extent of how deep it was hurting me and how deep I was hurting. And I did not have the courage like I still can struggle with today the courage to to ask for help I didn't you know back then I didn't even know that there was this concept of having an adult in my life that I can just talk to I just didn't have that I don't recall having that and you know, that was my dream. If anybody looks me up on, on, looks me up, whatever, looks up the first talk I did publicly, I, you know, I talk about that, you know, having this fantasy of, you know, and this, this fantasy and this dream goes way back. Like, I, I can't remember how far back it is, but it's this fantasy of crying, you know, finding a quiet place and crying and somebody finding me and me, me, me sharing my heartache with that.
0: Okay, so this uh, you discovered the power that alcohol gave you after this experience that you had where you had this tunnel vision and you saw things and you felt like you never felt before. It actually reminds me of this show I'm watching, The Queen's Gambit. I, I highly recommend it. It's actually a fantastic show. I don't know if you saw it already. But it reminds me of that experience where like the, the tranquilizers that she was using and the alcohol was giving her this feeling that like she can't live without it she's not powerful without it she's not she's not able to do anything without it um so when you how long was this going for and what what, when was your breaking point
1: yeah when so from 14 15 I, i began drinking more regularly 16 17 like a I was drinking beer. Um, I got introduced to like beer bongs, you know, when I'm like 15. Um, Where it became a sport and a way to show off as well. You know, that went on through 17, like all through the, you know, all through my teenage years. I stayed away from all drugs. I had friends that had started drugs and I just, I just, alcohol, I was just fine with alcohol, you know. And when I, was, when I was 19, I had made a, a pact with somebody that I would not smoke weed. When I was 18, I made that pact. But when I was 19 is when I reached out to this person. We made a pact that if we would ever smoke, we would do it together. And I was with two people I love dearly, and they were smoking. And I said, you know what? I'm going to do it. Oh, one second, I had this packed with somebody. <clears throat> I called that person. I got the green light <laughs> and and I smoked some weed and um, at first, I'm like, "No, oh, I'm not feeling anything. Do it some more, do it some more and all of a sudden, I just burst out into laughter. I laughed for a very, very long time, like for a few hours and that's it. I was hooked. I was hooked like that freedom and that on weed on weed yeah (laughs) yeah so it was that feeling that i had when i was like 13 like 14 14 or 15. i had had an even more significant experience when i was 19 smoking weed and i don't know if it was more significant but it was like as significant like zero to zero to 100. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and very quickly i became a daily pot smoker um I tried stopping a few times and it maybe lasted a week. And even when I tried stopping smoking weed, I, I still had alcohol all the time. I just want to be clear, like until I was, there was one time that I, I told a friend, you know, we were both sitting, we had like a massive bottle of, of Jack Daniels where we're sitting across each other on the table and we were having like real deep, meaningful discussions and we were composing a song and I look at him and I say, man, we're alcoholics, you know? And um, it was, it wasn't like a degrading statement. It wasn't a self degrading statement. For me at that time, it was like, we're much, we're just much more complicated and sophisticated and deep than anybody else we know. And this is where we live, this is where we shine in this deep, dark place of art, through music and words and, and wisdom. Um, we're both sober today, actually. He's supposed to sober.: Yeah, he's
0: about,
1: he's about seven years sober. He just celebrated seven years sober. Yeah. And um, that was the only time I ever recall saying that I'm an alcoholic. other than that, until I was in rehab. I didn't see alcohol as a problem. The only thing I ever tried to stop was smoking weed. That's
0: interesting, Moshe, because in my eyes, alcohol is more harmful than weed. You know, there's people who I know who smoke weed to like lower their blood pressure, to calm down, to relax. But I find that people who smoke weed every day, they don't really have like health issues. But... People who drink alcohol every day do have health issues. Actually, people mm-hmm. smoke weed or, you know, have marijuana because they have a health issue and they want to, like, lower their stress levels or help them cope with the pain. So it's interesting that you wanted to stop smoking weed but not alcohol.
1: hmm yeah, I can just speak for myself, like I'm not going to talk about weed and I'm not going to take a stance in politics around what weed is and what it does and what it doesn't. But I can tell you is, is that I recognize that it's an issue. Um, there were times where I would, you know, when I was 18, 19, no, 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 I was, I was 20, 21. Like there was times when I would run out of weed and while nobody was looking, I'd be on my knees on the floor combing through the threads of a carpet to try to find some weed and put it together so that i can smoke it so i was addicted you know i i would take you know there's one of the ways of smoking is using a slide and a bottle and a bong whatever at least for anybody who's been in israel they know exactly what i'm talking about um i would scrape that out dry it up and like I don't want to give anybody ideas, but it's so bad. It was so disgusting. Um, But I needed it. I was, I was, I personally was addicted to marijuana. I know people can say that that's not possible.
0: Right. Exactly. Uh, People say you can't be addicted to marijuana. It's harmless. Right. I smoke it like once a week, no big deal. Once a month.
1: So I want to be clear, like I am, I have absolutely nothing against alcohol. I have nothing against weed. I just know that my experience smoking it was pretty sad, you know? In the beginning, it was nice, I had a great time. Um, there, were, there were some times where I spent literally hours laughing with friends, I had great times, I don't regret that. But I've, it brought me to my knees, like they say, you know? It made me do things that I risked, like I, I spent the night in prison because I got caught one time. Um, And it brought me to my knees and it made me do things that were morally against what I believe was the right thing. You know, like when income came in for when I had, you know, my wife and my two kids and I would spend the money on my weed before I paid for groceries. There's something wrong with that, you know. Um, And most importantly is what happened to me when I didn't have it. What bubbled up? And what bubbled up was that same, all those same feelings. But, the, you know, as I got older, it wasn't just feeling that part of and feeling less than. it also came up with tremendous resentments and, and shame and guilt were, which were probably the three most powerful um, feelings that I would get.
0: When you were off it.
1: When I was off it. You know, so if I just take a, take a couple of puffs, you know, I would smoke, I would smoke a lot, but when I would smoke and I would drink, all of a sudden I became a very nice person.
0: hmm yeah. Can I ask you something? So you were having um, these issues for quite some time and then you got engaged, you got married, and did your, did your wife at the time know
1: yeah. Yeah.
0: about your issues?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, so she knew about that. She knew about other issues as well, which made it very difficult for her to even agree to, to marry me. That was like a big part of that, which I don't know. I guess if you interview her one day, you'll hear that whole of the story. Yeah. It was very significant. Um, I've promised many times that I would stop and I really, 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 really meant it, you know, and I stopped and then, there were times I just watched my body go and do things that I was like, no, 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 don't do that. And um, and I, every time that would happen, it would make me feel more and more ashamed, more and more um, hopeless.
0: Did you feel that, oh, I'm going to get married now, I'm going to have kids, so it's going to be better. I'm going to be better. I'm, I'm not going to need alcohol. I'm not going to need weed. I have everything.
1: Is right so i think I, I i think i don't recall 100 percent, but i imagine that i thought that just with marriage though i'm going to be with this person that i love she's going to complete me and um i will never need to use again um, but after that it was all ha- having my kids were more here's going to be the reason that's going to empower me to make a decision that i wasn't able to before Having a kid, wow, I'm for sure going to stop for that. I'm going to sh- for sure do it when my wife gets pregnant. And I'm for sure going to do it when she gives birth. And I'm for sure going to do it when the second time she gets pregnant. And I'm for sure going to do it when I go to Australia and we're stuck on the plane for 24 hours. So I'm, I'm kind of clean, even though just I'm, I'm drinking all this time. I'm going to be clean already for 24 hours. So let me use it as a springboard to to begin, you know, Uh, getting off weed and I just fall every time and it was devastating every time because the amount of courage and um, the amount of courage that it took for me to even be willing to try to stop was so much so every time I would disappoint myself and become a failure uh, maybe even more painful which means more pain more weed more pain more drinking more pain more shame all that
0: Mm -hmm. How did you break the
1: cycle? I broke the cycle by one night expressing that I did not want to live anymore. And I ended up being driven to a psychiatric ward where I detoxed for seven days. No alcohol, no weed. And I was locked in there, so I couldn't do anything about it. And when I was there, there was a remembering him no i'm just remembering his face i remember being with him so jack masri i met him there and all of he 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 single-handedly at that moment saved my life by convincing me to go to rehab he gave me a sense of belonging in a place where where it's almost impossible to feel that unless you're on enough meds um he shared with me some things and uh there was a certain language that we spoke that I don't recall ever having a conversation with somebody that I really, really, really felt understood. And coming from, from a place that he understood me and he also had more experience than me, even though my family were guiding me to go to rehab, from that conversation, he convinced me to go to rehab. and uh, And I went to rehab and that's where uh, I learned that I was also an alcoholic as as, as well as a, a drug addict. I was scared to say a drug addict. I was scared to say that I was just smoking, you know, because I was thinking, a drug addict, <laughs> I'm just a pothead, you know. I actually, in the beginning, they used to say, you know, people would introduce themselves when uh, we were in group, in, like in the large group when the entire rehab was together. They had lectures, you know, so people would introduce themselves. I would say, my name is Moshe and I'm a pothead. And... I didn't look at at marijuana as as a drug. it's just pot, you know, so it took time for me. I was even ashamed in rehab to say that I'm a drug addict, you know anyway, so I learned that uh you know in I learned in rehab that I'm not a bad person, um, I don't have to feel ashamed. uh addiction is very powerful, and it is a disease. And what I'm uh, running away from really is uh, restlessness, irritability, and discontentness. And to feel those three feelings, those things, including shame and rejection, are just too painful for me. And I was self-medicating. I needed a medicine. People have headaches. They're in physical pain. They take Tylenol. I felt an emotional pain. I took my medicine. And I was introduced to a new way to live, a new way to relieve myself of that pain. And it started with having support groups and therapy and working through my pain and my traumas and the things that I held um, that I was ashamed of.
0: How long were you in rehab for?
1: It was 30 days. Uh, most people in my group would, uh, were recommended to stay for longer. Um, I, I, if I were to give it any credit to why I was only 30 days, it's probably because I really participated uh, I took risks, and I shared things, and I also had a a plan for when I left, which included an intensive outpatient, a family that supported me, a wife that supported me, a um, a community, like even the Shoal the I would go to, which I actually founded, I'll take a little bit of credit wow. for that. Um, the rabbi came to visit me in rehab he drove three and a half hours each way to be at rehab for about 45 minutes to sit with me and a few counselors so that they can give him a little bit of like a a prep prep work for what happens when i leave and i come home and and the first shabbos that i came back from rehab the entire there was no alcohol um some people were pretty upset Um, and i actually told them it's okay you don't need to do that for me I really appreciate it, but you don't need to do that for me. but you're talking about you know at the time we were probably like i don't know fifty sixty men like like a it was a, it was a pretty big show and um pretty big synagogue, and we drank a lot, so for them to do that was very significant, and I appreciated it so before I left rehab, I already had all this support set up for me um so they were confident that I'd be okay.
0: What would you advise people who after they go to rehab and they come back because, you know, there's so many instances of people relapsing yeah. and then they have to go back to rehab and they come back home and they relapse again, go back to rehab. So yeah. what, what would you suggest for people to do after rehab?
1: Yeah, So that sure. they don't
0: relapse.
1: I'll be happy to. Um, what I'll suggest to you is what I did, you know, and um, what I did was I staying sober became my number one priority, which means I went to my place of work on the first day after I came back from rehab and I had a meeting with, it was a family member, nevertheless the person that I would work with who had a decision to make. And I said my sobriety is number one which means three times a week i'm going to be leaving work to go to my intensive outpatient every single day i'm going to be going to a 12-step meeting sometimes it's going to be during the day sometimes it's going to be in the evening but this is what i need for in order for for me to stay sober are you okay with that if you are great then i'm staying if you're not okay with that that's okay i'm leaving
0: Hi everyone, hope you're enjoying the conversation so far. We'll be back in a minute, but here's a quick word from our sponsor. Are you having trouble falling asleep, experiencing eye fatigue, or suffering from headaches? Yeah, that sounds like me too. Well, it likely has to do with your eyes. Studies show that blue light emanating from the screens of digital devices is damaging to the eyes causing them to strain and age rapidly while potentially leading to macular degeneration. Thanks to innovative lens technology by NYC-based eyewear brand 12, there is a solution for you. 12's blue light filtering, anti-glare, scratch-resistant, waterproof lenses shield your eyes and enhance your digital viewing experience. And they make sure you look good doing it by providing trendy and classic unisex frames that complete any look. You might ask, what if I don't have a prescription? Well, the good news is that you can wear these amazing, lightweight, durable glasses even if you don't have a prescription. It still does its job protecting your eyes since the problem is usually right in front of your face. And hey, if you already wear contact lenses, it's an ideal combo. Even when you're not staring at your phone, computer, or TV, you can simply wear it as a fashion statement when you're out and about and enjoy the UV protection it provides. They offer free shipping and free returns. Make sure to follow at 12Eyewear on Instagram now. In the meantime, you can place your orders via their website 12Eyewear.com. That's 12 2 dot com. do not forget to save 12% on your order by using promo code KK12 at checkout. 12. Protected eyes, perfected style.
1: And I was very blunt, and that's what I said. And, uh, and he said, yeah, it's okay. Stay. Mm-hmm. Let's do this.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. So sobriety has to be number one, number one, number one. Yeah. I can't tell you how many people, uh, you know what? Most people come back from rehab and they they relapse, you know, and the good rehabs, the whole story is a sad story. I'm not going to get into the whole discussion, but like 90% of people who come out of rehab relapse.
0: So then why are we going to rehab? Yeah. Why do people go to rehab if 90% relapse? Is there, are there better solutions? Is it that rehab only treats the disease and not the person?
1: No, no. I think it's, they, they work with the person. Um, I think we could, we could spend like a two and a half hour podcast just on that concept. Okay. Uh, if somebody asks me whether they should go to rehab or not today, I would tell them to go to rehab. Of course. It's 100% better than just trying to do it on our own. I know many people who have done it on their own which means on their own means that they detoxed um, if it was just from like you know minor drugs not from benzos because those people can get um, seizures from when they're just detoxing it's very dangerous as well as alcohol it's very important depending on how much alcohol the person is drinking it's important for them to go to a detox mm
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, so yeah, I know people who have detoxed and they go to, you know, 12-step meetings and, and they're sober today for, you know, I know some people who are sober for 14 years and and 20 years and 13 years. And when I say these numbers, I'm actually picturing somebody. Yeah, so, and these are people who never went to rehab. And they went to the AA them.
0: meetings. That's by going to AA meetings.
1: Yeah. Now, it's not just going to AA meetings.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It's it's, it's not like they just show up to the gym and they look right. at everybody else working out and they're like, okay, this is fun. This is nice. I feel healthy. I'm dressed up like everybody else. So I'm probably somebody who's fit. No, that's not the way it works. Uh, there's work to be done. And that's a little bit alluding to what I was saying earlier, the work, right? talk about that.
0: Yeah. So can you talk about what this work is? This, is it inner work? Is yeah. it work that you need to do with another person? Is it both? Mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: if you can. Yeah. Talk about that. yeah. So I love talking about this. That's the truth. Awesome. It's everything. Yeah. I love talking about this. The more I I do the work and the more I learn about it, the more I realize that it's 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 like everything that I've been taught. Like therapy, 12 steps, Torah, it's it's all the same. They're all trying to tell us the same thing. If you want to have a good life. admit where you have a challenge be clear about what it is you're trying to cover up and work on it whatever it is that you're trying to cover up and then you'll be free you know so um in the 12 steps it's like admitting that we're powerless over alcohol and then believing that i did this help for it and then taking an inventory to seeing what are the character defects because you could ask a question like i'm I'm here to quit alcohol what the heck are you talking to me about god and 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 um and, and character defects like fear and resentment and and harms done to others and part of the inventory is like a sexual inventory like what the heck does that have to do with my drinking or my drug use?" The answer is, this because let's go back to why am I using in the first place? And what I'm using in the first place, really, what it comes down to is almost always, it comes down to fear.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It all comes down to fear. And when I could, I heard somebody say that fear is like, um, like maggots or like like mushrooms, when they're exposed to the sunlight, when they're exposed to the light, they they disappear. Mm. You know, I actually, when I started my, when I did my first talk publicly, the first thing I did was said, I I voiced all of my fears. That was the first thing I did. You know, that would be one of the ways of doing the work. Like, hi guys, thank you so much for having me. I am scared that you all judge me. I'm scared of what you will look at me like when i see you in the in the the supermarkets or on the streets you know so yeah exposing the fear so that's why part of the you know the fifth step the 12 steps is talking about sharing it with somebody else yeah and then the sixth and seventh is already asking god to remove them so which means that there's a god in my life and um then there's making amends to others if i have harmed them and then there's being of service and and having that connection with God, which if I go back and I see like, what's, what's the whole point, the whole point of the 12 steps in my opinion, my experience is to me the way I am while I'm addicted, while I'm in active addiction. And I'll talk about what active addiction can be in sobriety also. And anybody is an addict when it comes to this, but when, I'm an addiction, I am powerless. The person who I identify as being is is powerless. Me on my own, because every time I saw myself, I I, I swore it off. I promised it off. I I did everything, and I uh, and I kept going back to it. So I, I knew that there was this. This was just much bigger than me. Much more powerful than me. And then. Through having a contact, conscious contact with a higher power, which means that if there's anything that tells me that I am not deserving of God's love, if there is anything that I am angry at God for, those are the things that are going to separate me. And if fear is my problem, then faith is my solution.
0: That's beautiful.
1: Um, so So I, who is separate from God, is powerless, but the I who is in contact with God is powerful because my power is not coming from me, the isolated me, the selfish, self-centered me. It comes from the selfless me, the less self there is, the more God's presence there is, which means the less selfishness there is, the more service there is. And just like from a very physical practical perspective is that when I am of service to others, everything that my soul or my heart needed that I was searching for in alcohol, I get from being of service to others.
0: Beautiful.
1: Yeah. So that's just the 12 steps. But think about in Judaism, like that's the same thing We, you know, 70, 80 years, I think it was the Valshenta that said 70, 80 years and the Shema comes down here just to do a favor for somebody else. You know, we're here to be of service to others. We're here to love. We're here to be of service to others. And there's some trauma or some sort of experience in our life tells us that we need to start turning inwards and, 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 and becoming protective of ourselves and focus on ourselves. The more we focus on ourselves, the more isolated we become, the more self-centered we become, not from a negative trait, but simply from a perspective of survival. You know?
0: Oh, blown away. That's beautiful. That's really the essence of Judaism. You see so many similarities between the you know, ideology of the AA meetings and Judaism, the essence of Judaism. It's about being there for others. It's not an isolated religion. It's not a religion where you go to the mountains and your retreats and you're all alone. It's all about helping other people and seeing the godliness in right. others.
1: Yeah, which there is, there is space for going and doing his and and, and and isolating oneself to a certain point. And the, and the purpose of the isolation and the purpose of the His-Badudus is uh, contemplation. We're talking about like meditation and these things are really there as a tool to bring me back to be more useful to others. Yeah. Because if I'm just sitting there and I go onto the top of a mountain somewhere and I spend my entire life there, how useful I might to others. Exactly. Uh, a, you know, what a waste of an incredible human being.
0: Yeah, exactly. Uh, Marsha, can you tell us what are some things that Jewish communities could do to help with addiction issues or people even getting there to that point?
1: Yeah.
0: Is this something that we can all do collectively to help this problem, especially nowadays, because it's not just addiction to alcohol and drugs. Now there's addiction to our smartphones. You know there's pornography food there's so many different things gambling um is there anything that you can think of that jewish communities can do
1: yeah i think it would be the exact thing that i was saying so i think it's going to take a little bit so i'm going to go on a little bit of a rant now so if you want to stop me at any point okay uh, feel no free problem to stop me and ask a question yeah there's a great clip It's on, uh, it was a TED talk. His name is escaping me.
0: Oh, I think. The title
1: is, you you for sure not. The title is Everything You Think You Know About Addiction Is Wrong. And Johan, um, Johan, Dr. Johan Harry. Johan Harry, yes. So he talks about how the opposite of addiction is connection. And then actually, I just posted a clip of what I was watching last night. And, um, You know, the point is, is that it's not, you know, we focus so much on the symptom and we forget about the cause. 99% of all of our efforts is looking at our loved one or ourselves in the mirror and say, what the heck is wrong with me? Why do I keep doing this? And it's not what's behind this, but it's based on a premise that there is something wrong with me. And the thing that's wrong with me is the fact that I take drugs, or I drink alcohol, or I watch pornography, or I, um, you know, I eat too much, or I can't control myself, I have impulses, I keep doing. The problem is not. The problem, the problem is not the the medicine that I'm taking, because it is a medicine. And somebody may say, "How dare you call such." Immoral behavior is medicine. Well, let's think about it. What happens to the person when they stop doing it? And what happens is, is they start feeling a certain, a certain emotional, almost always an emotional pain. So the problem is the emotional pain. So let's work on the emotional pain. And the greatest antidote, the greatest medicine for emotional pain that literally can knock out 50% of the painful experience of emotional pain is connection and and having someone to talk to somebody that really understands me which i started asking my question why is that so significant why is it so significant for someone to understand me and you know and what i what i what i found was that when i have connection here on earth then there's a place for me here on earth when i have a connection with somebody else and they're like yes you you know i saw this great clip oh so good i only saw half of it but it's about this guy that validates people validated you know you know Feeling validated is saying that there's a place for me on earth and I matter, you know,
0: mm-hmm. I
1: matter to this person, even though I think I don't deserve to matter, even though I think that, you know, there was a time that night that I wanted to kill myself. I was thinking that not only do I not deserve anything that, any of the good I have in life, but I was a burden and I would be relieving those who love me by no longer being around. They would be so much better off, right? So, so the question is like, how do I do that? I'm a parent, I'm a, I'm a wife, a husband, you know, it starts with ourselves. I think that's where it starts. Um, I used to think it starts with others, but I don't know. I guess it can both happen at the same time. But what I've learned in my coaching is that the best place to begin changing other people's lives is by changing our own. And... When I, when I look inside myself and I see parts of myself that I don't like, how do I behave? How do I react? And this goes into a lot of the therapy that I've done, which is the IFS model, internal family systems. So I'll have, I'll, I'll, um, I'll do something or I'll behave a certain way or I'll react to something that a certain way and I will start judging my reaction. Again, asking that same question like, what's wrong with me? Why can't I just be okay with something? And then there are many people that I meet that have adopted that voice of call it the inner critic. Right. So I'll do a certain behavior. Let's call it Smoking weed for now, right? So let's say I was smoking weed, and then a part of me was saying, "Like, what's wrong with you? Just stop, just stop." You promised so many times. What's wrong with you, right? You keep doing. I was smoking weed on Shabbos, like I was doing things that were really against things that I believed, and so I was beating myself up. And then at a certain point, what happens is is that we forget about, we almost forget about the fact that we're doing the behavior. We're just hurting so much by this inner critic. And then we start hating the inner critic. Right? So we have a critic of the critic. I wish this voice in my head would just stop beating me up. So, if this voice, why do I want this voice to stop beating me up? Because I just want to be okay. I want to be seen as valid. I want to be seen as... Somebody who's just going through a painful experience. You know, I just, I just want to be seen as that, as innocent. So then I criticize my critic. And that criticizing the critic can literally go seven, eight layers of criticizing the critic and then judging that critic and then judging that critic and then judging that critic. I meet some people that are in such deep emotional pain and the more layers of, of, of criticizing the critic that there is, the deeper that they are and, and, and hopeless they feel. So how do I start accepting myself? How do, I, how do I turn the process back? How do I turn it around and start loving myself? And what happens is, uh, I don't know, this is just the way I use it in my coaching, but I, I'm certain that this is all, inter- I see it as being what I've been taught in 12 steps and what I was I was taught in therapy. I just never saw it, but it's five words. Find the love to freedom. Okay. Find um, the just, love to freedom. Yeah. When I find the love, I become free. So at a certain point I start asking, questioning, why is it that I beat myself up, but not from a, a, um, accusing perspective more of like a curious perspective Mm -hmm. i wonder like that's the key word i wonder why I, i beat myself up and the answer always comes that i care the only reason why i would criticize is if i care and my question is where does caring come from the only way i would care about something is if i love it right so that's finding the love so if i could find the love at the at the bottom of everything that helps me set it sets me free cuz once i find let's say if i'm nine layers in and i look at the thing next to me it's always easier to find the love with the with the the most outer critic right because that's the closest it's almost like it's the closest thing to me oh this is my buddy i could put i had actually envisioned the idea of like me putting my arm over the critic right next to me who was standing up for me or standing up for call it my inner child because he was criticizing my critic he was like kind of on my team but at the end of the day he was criticizing another part of me right so on one hand he was doing something that's painful but on the other hand he was standing up for me so i'm able to find the love in that and when i'm able to find the love in that i'm able to put my arm over its shoulder and say hey Thank you for looking out for me. I really appreciate it. I don't necessarily, I won't necessarily voice, I don't really appreciate that you're hurting a part of me, but I do appreciate where you're coming from. So thank you for being here for me. I love you.
0: Wow, this is.
1: And I work my way back. I work my way back, layer after layer after layer, and almost, it almost like flips through all nine layers very quickly to that one critic that's that beats me up the most the loudest most common one the one that's up before me in the morning and and as soon as i wake up tells me that i'm a piece of who knows what and i'm able to love that part of me and when i love that part of me all of a sudden it's like oh there's i'm going to say it in a few different words but there's a soul here i don't have to be the parent anymore I don't have to be the critic anymore. I don't have to be that employee that's been stepping up while the CEO has left and been on vacation for six months and is telling everybody what to do. I don't have to be anything else anymore. I'm just perfectly okay. This is called self-parenting. This is called whatever. There's so many different terms that people call this. But that's what I see it as, you know, find the love. When I find the love, all of a sudden I'm free. And the question is, what really frees me is, is what I go back, like what was the 12 steps and, and Judaism. is like, who is the one that's finding the love? Who is the me that's finding the love? Who is the one that is curious? Who is the one that put my arm over the other part of me? Understanding who I am as being that. There's so much comfort. There's so much hope that comes from that. Oh, I'm not a bad person. I'm really this good person that's been hijacked or has been, you know, not present, has been covered up by so many layers and layers of klippot, right? Who's covering over my soul. I don't know, this is just my understanding of it today. So 12 steps, I'm just, it's an uncovering process of understanding that there is a God within me that's my understanding. Some people call it all these different things what their higher power is. But for me, it's uncovering the God within me, the God within me that knows. And doesn't. And like when I'm faced with indecision, and I don't know what to do, what I'm really doing is I stop and I pray. But what I'm really doing is, is I'm covering the inner knowing within me. And maybe the, the, the thing that's within me, which is I call my neshama, my soul, really knows. But maybe what it knows is that I'm supposed to ask somebody else for advice.
0: Um, that's beautiful, Moja. But that's
1: within me. Yeah.
0: You know, I back to the question. I know the question about how we can, as community, as a community, help people not fall into addiction. And your answer, which was so complex, but I really like. I broke it down into: it starts with us, but we also need others. You know, we have to be able to, like, face ourselves, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and really, really be in touch, really, really be in touch with ourselves, our inner core. At the same time, being able to ask for help. And, you know, what you're doing is very, you know, revolutionary. I don't know too many men who do this inner work. there i grew up knowing that men don't cry boys don't cry men have to be tough men we don't talk about feelings so (laughs) how did you get okay with being vulnerable and making other men comfortable with all their emotions besides anger and happiness you know because i think sadness (laughs) And a lot of men is disguised as anger, you know, anger disguises the sadness. Mm -hmm. So if you have a message for the men listening to this podcast, hopefully, um, how is it okay to feel all your emotions and still be a man?
1: (laughs) Thank you. Um, I think I, uh, I'm not sure if I have seen it anywhere, but I, 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 I believe in this thing called normalizing vulnerability. Um, If you haven't seen it, please take a look at uh, what Brené Brown talks about uh, uh, vulnerability. There are two TED Talks and a Netflix um, episode. Vulnerability. Vulnerability is the process of taking down the walls that separate me from you. If I want to feel true love, if I want to feel true oneness, if I want to embrace Life itself, I have to take down my walls. Yes, I need walls in order to protect me. That is true. But there are those that I am willing to invite into my home. And there are those who, ha- who, who are willing to invite me into their home, into their sacred space. You know, if I took the safer Torah and I just kept it locked in the safe all year round, what type of connection would I have with the Sefer Torah? There comes a day of which I take all the Sefer Taras out of the, the Aron Kodesh and I dance with them, whether they are puzzle, whether they are, are, or have a defect or they don't. I dance with all of them. There comes a day where I need to open up and celebrate all of who I am. So if you're looking for a source in Torah, you got one. If you're, you know, when, when we're stuck in these emotions, it's just, uh, I, f- I feel so much compassion for that because I was there, I held in those emotions for so many years. And the walls that protect me, imprison me, as soon as those walls are a constraint, that's the day when it's important for me to find somebody I trust and share something with them. And it's a risk. Yes, it's a risk. For me, one hundred percent of the time that I reached out to somebody who was emotionally healthy, I was embraced with love, acceptance, and compassion. One hundred percent of the time. There were a few times, actually. There's only one time that I can think of that I reached to somebody, reached out to somebody who I was looking for their compassion. I was looking for their validation of of my pain as a way of comforting myself but they just weren't ready for that and they weren't emotionally healthy so that's when i feel i felt that rejection those were the times where i can i can provide that for myself you know oh wow there's a part of me that really needs maybe i can provide that for myself but not through trying to get somebody else to validate me but maybe to recognize that I have that issue, and maybe speak to a therapist, somebody who is uh, much more emotionally available. Yeah.
0: Morsheth, can you tell us some of your hopes and dreams for the world?
1: (laughs) (laughs) My hopes and dreams are that uh, every person go through this process, or not even need to go through this process, but experience this, liberation of an inner innocent pursuit of loving and from that place there's so much more light that can be in the world and i believe that that is the purpose of why god created the world in the first place he wanted to have a rest uh, a, a place to live here on earth i believe that that is the purpose of why we were created we're this is a world of which we go against the current you know the current is um, self-centeredness and survival and and uh, if i give you i have less and the way we reveal godliness here is by providing that inner healing for ourselves you know Within ourselves, it says that each person is like a base in the Mikdash, and they have their Kodesh Kodashim. Right? We can bring the light of God, acceptance, and love within ourselves. I always say, like the darkest place in the world of where I need to bring light is in my head. And I say that because just a very simple example is that when I go through, if I go into a dark alleyway or if I'm fearing something, my mind will make it 10 times darker than whatever the darkness is. So I know that my mind is for sure the darkest place. So if I can bring acceptance and love to my mind, that will be really, really fulfilling my purpose here on earth which is to bring light to the darkness and if I bring light to the darkness to myself I'll be so much more fit to bring light to the darkness of somebody else give them the love and acceptance that they need because usually the defect that we see in others is really a a reflection of the defect we see in ourselves I judge others because I'm judging myself as that
0: blown away I was trying to hold my tears back in this interview I mean this has been after a very um, tumultuous month for me as you know and um, just everything you were speaking about really touched me in many ways. Um, I just think so many people are living within their walls stuck in their self-centeredness living according to this Everything revolves around me, you know? And what you spoke about, you're sharing your story with us, was truly liberating. I mean, what you went through and how you came out of it and are continuing to come out of that and help other people is truly, truly inspiring. And I wanna thank you for being here sharing your story being vulnerable with the audience with me and helping other people um where can people find you
1: um i i don't know anywhere on uh <laughs> i'm on facebook i'm on instagram i have a website called um which oh, i,
0: I didn't haven't know. updated
1: in a while i haven't updated in a while i don't even know it's probably misinformation by now <laughs> um chewable goals dot com yeah because we take on too big and then we
0: (laughs) oh beautiful awesome somebody
1: say that um, it's worse to take on small goals and achieve them Um, I disagree with that Mm. yeah I disagree with that Uh, look I have this concept that actually I've been challenged to write to write on and it's uh, um, the title is with room to grow, you know? I'm perfect just the way I am, with room to grow. I wanna have um, happiness with room to grow. I wanna have all these things, right, yeah.
0: Beautiful, <laughs> I love that.
1: That's yeah.
0: Thank you so much, Marsha. Thanks for listening to my podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review, subscribe, and feel free to reach out with feedback and questions. If you want to learn more about what I do, you can check out my Instagram page at coach.kk and click the link in my bio. Let's connect.